Canada has very cheap land until it's on municipal services. And then it's incredibly expensive. Okay. So when you think about Ottawa and you think of all the land around Ottawa, it's incredibly cheap. But if you look in Ottawa in, into a, a, a cost of a residential lot now that's on municipal services, it's probably worth 10 times the value of a, a land a kilometer away that's not on municipal services. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today. We have a very, very special guest. I'm actually very honored to have Mark as a guest on the podcast today. As CEO of Capri, they own the most multifamily apartment units in Canada. So uh, it's a big deal for me. I know Mark is very busy. Uh, Mark, how are you doing today? I'm great, Mateo. How are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Mark, it's great to hear you're doing good. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I don't know what I can tell you. I'm a proud father of two kids. Both of my kids have uh, been through the university cycle now and out in the workforce here post-COVID. So very proud of that. I've been married for 32 years. Live up in Newmarket, Ontario. And uh, I've had the good fortune of uh, being involved with Capri for 26 plus years now. And uh, had a a wonderful, wonderful journey in real estate with Capri. That's great. So 26 years, uh, sounds like uh, a very good run and you still have more in your tank. Yes. And, and going through probably some of the most interesting uh, real estate times in Canadian history, especially on the residential front. We're in an unprecedented housing crisis with uh, really a lack of clarity of where we're going. So talking about lack of clarity or where we're going, and I, that's definitely on the government's part. So why do you think some in the government are against financialization of housing based on the recent parliamentary committee hearings on the financialization of housing? Well, I think, I think the government, to be fair, um, had had you know, bad advice or limited education um, the apartment REITs in Canada are less than 2% of the rental universe. So to blame a group that owns less than 2% collectively, like not Capri, all of the apartment REITs together, to blame us for the affordability crisis in Canada is actually uh, a bizarre allegation in my mind. Um, we, we, found, we found it uh, to be more difficult than you would think to, to answer the question to government, which was like, what is financialization of housing? What are, what are you referring to? And the, what came back was, oh, big greedy corporations owning apartment buildings, to which we replied, investors have always owned apartment buildings. That is the definition of a market apartment building. So what behavior is it that these big corporations have that you, you take objection to. And if you have an objection, you can legally do something about that. And then it was kind of just stopped with the narrative of, well, we don't know you're big, so you must be bad. And, and the truth is because the public apartment REITs disclose our financial statements and the 98% of the private market does not, they only have one set of financial information to look at and they don't know 
what the financial situation is of private. So it took a lot of explaining of, you know, we do a lot for supply, um, new, new housing supply, do a great deal of ESG investment, and we have very modest returns to our investors, very modest. Like we're talking like 3% uh, kind of distributions amongst the apartment group. So it, it's a very responsible structure to own apartments. And it allows the average Canadian to buy into a rental investment. With one share, you can be a, a, an apartment owner in Canada. And, and so these are all very positive things. But what the activist community tends to do is look at like the bottom line earnings and or the total earnings, and they don't understand the amount of capital that's been invested to make a couple of hundred million dollars. They just hear a couple of hundred million dollars and think there's one person that's driving a jet and and, <laughs> and, and, and living some sort of crazy lifestyle. So it, it's very confused, Mateo, wow. in terms of what the structure is. And sadly, Canada has got itself in this place because there's no dialogue with the private sector. So from the government's perspective, big corporations like REITs are to blame for the current housing yeah. crisis. Did you convince them that you're not well, to blame? Not, we'll never convince some people that don't want to look at the math. But again, apartment REITs don't own any houses in Canada. So are we responsible for the prices of housing going through the roof on the home ownership front? And how do you explain rents going up in Thunder Bay, for example, where the apartment REITs don't own a single apartment? How come rents are going up there? How come rents are going up in, in cities everywhere across Canada where apartment REITs own no, nothing? How do you explain that? So like, it's a ridiculous conversation, quite frankly. There's no other uh, situation where you would blame a 2% collective owner of an industry for all of the problems of the industry. It's, I don't know why it's a complicated discussion. It's very popular to pick on large corporations as the source of all evil, but large corporations are also who's building supply. So like, what is it that you want at the end of the day is part of the challenge that we have with government. And the next thing, Mateo, is it's not just the federal government. There's issues at the provincial level and there's huge issues at the municipal level, as everybody is seeming to understand now. So the problem with Canada is we have three levels of government and they all have different agendas. You know, the feds love immigration. It's popular for voting, but immigration has an effect on housing. You can't have responsible immigration policy if you don't have responsible housing policy. And again, is it complicated to understand this? No, it takes 20 minutes to process a family of four coming into our country, and it takes seven years to build their home. Think about that. So when we let a million new people into our country in one year, you can't just build 250,000 homes, a family of four, you know, for each home with snapping your fingers. It takes seven years. So that doesn't account for the backlog that happened before. And the final problem is that I was, I've been harping on for, for a few years now. Nobody understood that COVID helped the housing crisis. It helped the housing crisis because kids went home. You had families, household consolidation happening. So you didn't need as many homes. If all the kids are gonna be at home with mom and dad, 
then you don't have the, the housing crisis. But when they go back to independent living, bang, huge housing crisis. Because construction slowed down, these kids came out of their homes, and a million new people came to Canada. Not to mention 800,000 foreign students. This is a catastrophic failure of, of demand. You made an interesting point. So COVID helped housing? COVID was great for the housing crisis. Apartments had vacancies. Uh, you know, when people were in lockdown, mom and dad said, come home. And here's what's really amazing about Canada or quite interesting about Canada. We have three big cities, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Okay. Canadian kids live within an hour of mom and dad. This is what happens. Okay. You're an East side Toronto person. You're a West side Toronto person. You're an Ottawa person. You, you live in, you live in your mom and dad live in Canada and you live downtown. Okay. This is what happens. This is not us in us. If you're under 30, you're working in Texas and mom and dad live in, in Seattle or you're, you're, you're like, it's all over the place, but in Canada, it was easy for the kids to go home because they only lived an hour from mom and dad anyway, which means they weren't that far from work, which means they weren't that far from, from their friends and whoever. So Canada had a very unique COVID experience with kids going home. We all know kids went home, but nobody said, what's the effect of that? And the effect of that was a lot of vacant accommodation. So if we had another lockdown, our housing crisis would get a little easier. But when you let a million people in, in one year, and, and you have 800,000 foreign students, and you are behind in the construction cycle, you have a disaster of, of a decade in front of us. Wow. And now they're talking about it, but nobody's actually done anything um, because you can't. Now you have interest rates going up. So construction starts are going down at the same time that demand is going through the roof. And to blame apartment rates for this problem is kind of outrageous finger pointing in my mind. Like it's actually, it's, it's actually, I think if you took the time to explain this to the average Canadian, they would get it in a couple of minutes if they cared. Yeah. I think it's that simple. So who's to blame then for the housing crisis? We are as Canadians, we're all to blame. We're all to blame. Like we're all to blame for not holding our public officials accountable. And we're really to blame um, as a country at the municipal level. Canadians do not like development. They love immigration. As long as you're not building in their backyard, they're happy. And, and so this has been the big problem of the last decade is that municipal politicians are worried about their next election and all they care about are ratepayers. So when a ratepayer hears they're going to build a 30 story building in my backyard and I'm going to lose my view or shadows. It doesn't happen. And, and so this is the big problem at the municipal level, and it's made 10 times worse at the federal level when there's not a responsible inflow of people. And the poor provinces are left to solve the problem, but they, they, they're the least involved in the solution of the supply of people and, and sort of the supply of apartments and the demand for more people. It's a crazy system. We're, we're all upside down. We're looking at the provinces to solve a problem that they have the least impact on. So talking about neighborhoods, I could see why people are resistant to new development in the neighborhoods. What needs to be done to change the perception of new development in neighborhoods? Well, forget about that. Let people have <laughs> their own neighborhoods, okay? 
What we need to do is build new city centers, okay? Canada has very cheap land until it's on municipal services, and then it's incredibly expensive, okay? So when you think about Ottawa and you think of all the land around Ottawa, it's incredibly cheap. But if you look in Ottawa in, into a, a, a cost of a residential lot now that's on municipal services, it's probably worth 10 times the value of the, a land a kilometer away that's not on municipal services. So we need more municipal services, okay? So what, what do we do about that? Well, in the US, the private sector builds the municipal services and hands it over to the municipalities. In Canada, our development future depends on the municipalities and they're not good developers. Like they're just not entrepreneurs. So when you have a crisis where you need more capacity, we need more municipal services, period. And if we look to the municipal employees to do this, good luck to all of us. They have no incentive, none. And in fact, it's a bit of a headache and they can't figure it out. The best example to look at in my mind is Dallas, Texas. And in Dallas, Texas, they have these things called municipal utility districts where the private sector is building out the services. There's something like 38 of them active right now. Dallas, Texas added more capacity to the surrounds of Dallas in the last decade than any other place in the US. It's very fast because the private sector are building municipal services at 40% of the cost of the municipality. It's unbelievable, but which makes perfect sense. Who do you want your developer to be? A developer or the, or the government? Who do you think is going to be more efficient at the end of the day? A, a developer or the government? If you believe it's the government, then the answer is, well, then why aren't we in balance? If they were that good, why aren't they? Why, aren't they, why is land so expensive in a country that has so much land? Why have we not been developing uh, new cities? You know, um, in your case, in Ottawa, I used to live in Brockville, which why isn't Brockville being built out? Why isn't Smith Falls being built out? Why are all the satellite cities around Ottawa where they have a basic hospital, basic education, basic infrastructure? Why are not we not expanding on those regions in rapid, rapid rate? This is the problem. We're trying to do the same old thing in downtown Toronto and downtown Ottawa and fighting the same old stupid fight. And, and it's not working. So that that's that's the issue with three levels of government, mass confusion. <laughs> mass confusion. Well, I, I like your point there. So building new city centers as opposed to focusing on changing people's perception on new developments in their community and the resistance to that. So what needs to be done to encourage more development in Smith's Falls, Brockville, and towns around Ottawa? What needs to be done? The private sector needs to be at the table with government. And the private sector knows what they're doing. The role of government is to govern. The role of the private sector is to develop. And we've lost our way. So you've got every government talking about the fact it's going to build, and it's ridiculous what the, the volumes that they're talking about are in the thousands of units when we need units in, in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of units. And you talked about uh, MUDs in Texas, that's municipal utility districts. Is this yeah. practical in Canada? Can this be done in Ontario, no. for example? There's no reason why it can't be done. It's a matter of government embracing that as a concept and getting the special interest groups out of the way to allow it to happen. 
like either we want one or two things, Mateo. We want uh, perfect uh, uh, green space and all of this business, but we have to stop immigration completely. And we have to stop our foreign students from coming in. And that will cool the housing market. Um, not right away, but it will eventually cool it down. Or we have to get on with the reality of building the housing that's required and get our head into the sands. So what does Canada want? We have to decide. So for most Canadians, the housing crisis is good news. If you have a home and you're about to retire and you're worth a couple of million dollars, who cares? It's a great thing, this housing crisis. So 50% of the people in our country do not have a mortgage, okay, on the home ownership front. And 50% of people have debt they can't handle. It's, it's, it's two different worlds. So for the people that don't have debt, there's no crisis going on. The only crisis that's going on is for people with kids and new, new Canadians. So who does the government care about? They have to decide who they care about. Not everybody. So you talked about international students. Um, what's your take on the current planned cap on the number of international students that, can, that universities can take in or admit? I think Canadian universities need those foreign students to function. I think foreign students are wonderful. It's a question of what's the right balance of number. And I don't know what the number is. Okay. It's also, I, I'm a firm believer in immigration. We need immigration because we have a lot of, our country was built on, on what new people could add to our country, but we have to, what's the right number and who are we bringing in and why? Like we have to have people that want to be skilled trades. We don't need any more kids going to university. It's upside down. The Canadian dream was come to the country. My kid will go to school and get a great education to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or an accountant. None of those people swing a hammer and none of them can connect electrical outlets. Okay. So we need more trades. It's a dignified profession to be in a trade, but the Canadian dream has changed that. And people that have come to the country have want to come to the country and their kids to get an education. How about come to the country so that you can give your kids a future? <laughs> That should be the narrative is, is we need people that will help build the house we desperately need. The Canadian dream of sending your kid to go to university to be a professional needs, needs to come to an end. We need Canadians who want to come to the country to, to help us with this housing crisis. Wow. So we need more trades for sure. If any young kid is out there listening, that's thinking of going to university, that's doing well in school. My advice would be learn a trade because you'll become a business owner. And you'll be a really smart business owner. Okay. And we've got to get rid of this thing. Oh, I'm not good enough to go to school. So I become a trade. That's ridiculous. The biggest opportunity in life is to learn a trade and have your own business. This will be a much brighter financial future for a lot of kids than going to university and working for someone else. What's it going to take to change kids' perception? We got to yell at them. <laughs> well, we got to stop telling them you need to go to university as parents. So just uh, focus on trades. Not every kid is the same. Yes. Okay, like, like, you know, my son is a data scientist. He was never going to work in a trade. He's a specific, you know, academic. Um, but my nephews uh, both chose the, the route of going into you know, one, a plumber, the other electrician. These are fantastic decisions, fantastic decisions. And, and the bigger path there isn't just having a job. It's having your own business at a time when Canada desperately needs those. those there's going to be no lack of work. So if you want stability in your life and you want to have a bright, bright future, go into, go into the trades. Just don't go to university. I feel very strongly about that. Very, very strong. Because I think it's good advice. 
Yes. The opportunities are always what people aren't doing. If nobody's competing for an opportunity, that's what creates opportunity. That's right. And talking about uh, the housing crisis, should the Ontario government eliminate rental control? It's not going to encourage investment to, to have a regulation. Like building rental isn't an obligation. Building rental is a decision. So when the environment is more regulated, why, why would you invest in something that has the threat of regulation? Invest in something else. What I want to know from the activist community is why have they not handed over their net worth to build more affordable housing? And why are they not building the affordable housing? Why? There's no law against them doing it. So why go after a group that has made that investment when they can do it themselves? It's a free country. You're allowed to do whatever you want. You want affordable housing? Take, take your house, sell it, and build affordable housing. Be a developer. Nobody's stopping anybody from doing it. Now, that's a bit of an extreme kind of example. But what I'm trying to get across, for Canada to be prosperous again, we all have to say, what can I do? Not what can the government do. That's what can true. I do to solve the problem? And, and, and this is the problem Canada finds itself in. We, we keep looking for government to solve the problem that government arguably made. They talked about uh, regulation and activists. Uh, is regulation a bad thing and uh, activists a problem? It's too broad a stroke. Regulation is a good thing because the private sector can be opportunistic. We need regulation of behavior, 100%. Many activist activities are well-intended and are correct, okay? What I'm talking about is let's stop fighting with one another and, and let's look at the reality of what the situation is. So if, if you know, the argument is uh, housing rental should have no profit, then it should be null nonprofit. And, and that same community that's asking for that should be part of that solution. That's very good. And what needs to be done to change society's view of landlords who can sometimes be perceived as ripping off the poor? Well, I hate the word landlord. It sounds like some little guy in a throne in England, okay? Um, but not all people are the same. Can you imagine where, where a world where I categorized a certain group as being a certain way, that's called racism. It's called a lot of, or it's called discrimination or it's called labeling, okay? No, it's not right. There's a lot of really good housing providers out there that are really trying to do the, the right thing that are doing good things. And there's some really bad ones. So the bad uh, actors, there needs to be regulation to keep them accountable and, and hold them in check and to make them go away. But like all people, there's good and bad. And it's terrible to categorize a group as being a certain way. And, and, and I think it's incredibly unfair to call all housing providers, you know, a, a certain, it's just as bad to characterize all tenants as being a certain way. That's a, that's a, that's a terrible thing to do. Like there are good actors and there's bad actors. And on the tenant side and on the housing provider side, there needs to be ways of holding both groups accountable. You know, I'll tell you a kind of personal, personal story that happened to us recently. In the news, we had a, we had a building manager that was shot by a tenant who didn't like how they were being treated. They bought a gun, they went across the street and they attempted to kill the building manager. It was in the news here in Toronto. Okay. And the person was arrested. They were, they were, it was on video camera footage. It was pretty straightforward situation. And that tenant 
has the right to go back into the building. The tenants that live in this particular building are terrified, obviously, of this person coming back if they get released on bail. And can you imagine the site person that there was an attempted murder on, knowing that this person has the rights to go back in the unit? And we had absolutely no right at all to deal with this person. Okay? So tell me how that's fair. So when it comes to regulation and fairness, we need ways on both sides of the fence to deal with extreme situations and stop just focusing on, you know, particular situations of generalized behavior. Regulation wow. is good when it's well thought out. Very good. It's needed. Human beings need to be governed by the law <laughs> and regulation is just uh, the law. What we're talking about is taking away, you know, basic business property rights to discourage investment. That is not a good idea for Canada that needs needs rental. Wow. That's uh, yeah, that's a pretty extreme. Um, it's a true story. Just, wow. And uh, the building manager is OK. The building manager is OK. That's good to hear. You talked about MUDs. I'm, I'm particularly very interested in this topic. So what can be done? Who needs to initiate the process to encourage I, I, Well, the cities can take this into their own hand and form partnership where with private enterprise building facilities and handing them over. They're not likely to do that, okay? So the province is likely to be the best party to make that happen, but the feds can also make that happen. So the reality is we need capacity for our housing. And part of the reason that land is so expensive is we have limited municipal services. Because we have limited municipal services, the value of the commodity goes right through the roof. So we have a limited amount of land on municipal services, but we have an incredible amount of land that's affordable. So somebody, <laughs> and I'm not a lawyer, but somebody needs to understand the logic of getting help to build more capacity. Whether that's the provinces, whether it's the feds or whether it's the municipalities, this needs to be addressed across the country to solve a country national problem. So I, I think the feds can play a very important role in, in forcing that. But even if you force it, that's just the capacity issue for more housing. That helps the cost of land go down when you've got a lot more land that can be built on. Then you've got the problem of, of uh, the current interest rate environment. And the current interest rate environment's made it almost impossible to build anything. A lot of projects are getting canceled. So we've had more canceled projects in the last you know, 12 months than, than the, over the last decade at a time when our demand is, is, is going through the roof. So wow. it's, a it's a complicated problem. It's not like if we do this, the problem solved, done. That's what we all want to hear, but it's, it's just not that simple. You know, you, you cannot um, dismantle an exploded bomb, okay? It's already exploded. You can't stop it. And that's what phase we're in now. The bomb has already exploded. Now it's like, how do we clean up the mess? And and we missed the opportunity to uh, deactivate the bomb. That's a very good point. So limited municipal services cause land to be expensive. That's one element. That's one element. It's a big one. But it's one element because then you get to the conversation of uh, development fees. Why are they so high? Well, they're so high because you have to build more hospitals and more schools and more in, in an already overbuilt area. So you're better off starting again in fresh cities and, and building upon 
the existing infrastructure. That's why like small town Ontario has an incredible opportunity here. Like think about this, this is crazy. In BC, they have no land. They only have a couple of highways to get through the whole province. Like Vancouver, they have, you know, good, good transportation. But to go anywhere else in the, in the, in the, in the province, you, have, you only have a couple of highways you can take. Ontario has unlimited highways. We have unlimited access because we're flat. Okay? So our ability to connect within a couple of hours of already built city centers is huge. It's enormous. So Ontario, of all places, is the best place to solve the problem. Quebec is similar. You, it, the access issues aren't as complicated. BC has way bigger challenges, but they're doing a lot more. The most successful province for affordable housing is Alberta because it's very private sector friendly and it's had very generous zoning and it has lots of available transportation networks and, and it's, it's, it's in great shape, um, but quickly getting behind because like a lot of people now are going to Alberta because the, the housing costs in the rest of the country are just outrageous. That's amazing. That's very good. You bring up some very good points focusing on smaller towns around Ottawa, for example, um, to build yeah. new city centers. That's very good. And so for Capri, what's your approach to uh, sustainability? Well, again, the public companies are the only apartment owners that are investing in ESG, specifically environmental measures. The private sector is spending nothing on this. This is only the public companies. Again, we're back to the, the 2% owner of the industry doing all the good work. And what we're doing is, uh, I think all the apartment REITs are doing a remarkable job of investing in those assets to try to work towards sustainability goals, okay? And carbon emission targets. The private sector is not doing this. This is, this is completely the public sector doing this, the public market sector. So we're doing a lot of energy work, as are the other apartment REITs, to try to make these older buildings more energy efficient. It's another reason we should be owning the buildings. When we sell these buildings, the next owner will not be doing what we're doing, and we're selling a lot of uh, a lot of uh, buildings. You'll you'll uh, you'll see our disclosures. We're very focused on selling the older assets and focusing on new construction apartments. And so, th this making your buildings, older buildings, more energy efficient is this worth uh, the investment? You know, in some cases, it is, and then ultimately. The amount of carbon emission that's required, it's it's not financially viable. So so there are payback measures on energy that are um, absolutely interesting, and a lot of apartment owners in the in the uh, sorry uh, apartment REIT owners have, have, are doing this, and you know for that reason we consider ourselves to be the good actors of the industry. Um, but I keep going back to the same point: the private sector apartment owners are not doing any of this. How does that make you competitive? The competition is really the competition for tenants. And that competition is, is because of the housing crisis, not that difficult. Okay. It's the decision to spend money that we don't have to spend that makes the returns lower in the public markets uh, space than it does in the private sector. That's very good. Well, uh, Mark, it's been a great chat with you. You brought up some very good points here. Uh, I need to go back and listen to the whole conversation again. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Mateo, thanks for taking the time to reach out to me. Uh, have a great week. You as well. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Bye, Mateo. Bye-bye.